Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour, and a day, and a month, and a year, for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire, and of jacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions. And out of their mouths issued fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed, by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tail. For their tails were like unto serpents, and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils, and idols of gold, and silver, and brass, and stone, and of wood, which neither can see, nor hear, nor walk, neither Repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. It is very interesting to me uh, the way that the Lord has laid out the texts for us. It seems as if in recent weeks he would keep the issue of idolatry and even our heart idolatries before our uh, before our eyes he has made this in some ways a a constant and consistent meditation for us we have talked about um, and of course we have always been well aware of uh, idolatry in the second commandment sense When we worship the true and living God, we're to do it by his ordinances and by his ordinances alone. We repeat this frequently. But in recent days, we have had that other kind of idolatry, that first commandment sense of idolatry very much in view. Our hearts have a throne, and it is fitting that only God sit there. But sometimes we can place a creature there 
Sometimes we set overmuch affection upon a creature, and that creature displaces God. Sometimes we trust in a creature. When trust is uh, appropriate, really, in an ultimate sense, only for God. You know yourself. We all like to think of ourselves as faithful, right? But we know ourselves, and we know how frequently our failings are. God never disappoints. He never uh, disappoints. So we have had the idols in front of us, even talk some about how to identify these. This morning, the Lord set before us one of the great idols of this time and this place, even the American military. The American people yet believe that they are secure because of our military force and power. But of course, uh, we are not the first people to make an idol of the military. These powers in the history of the world have risen and fallen, risen and fallen. Turn with me to Psalm 115. When we make idols of these things, they always disappoint. Psalm 115, beginning in verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. The declaration of scripture is that ultimately uh, everyone who makes and trusts in an idol is going to be like unto that idol. Idols cannot do anything. They are unable to help their worshipers. And so as worshipers look to them for help in the hour of need, ultimately it comes to naught. The idol is nothing. And as they trust on the idol, they are destroyed. This is the end of the matter. Here's what we know, at least in the abstract. The human heart is prone to idolatry. As a matter of fact, we know it to be impossible, apart from special grace, to keep God enthroned upon the heart. We're constantly wanting to put something else, someone else, into his seat. And we're usually willing to admit in the abstract, I am prone to idolatry. I have them. I make them. And we know um, that ultimately they're going to disappoint us, as we, as we saw this morning. And one of my great burdens tonight, as we look at the history of the fulfillment of verse 20 here, 
Our text highlights in a striking, practical, historical manner the folly of trusting in idols and their ultimate failure. And you have more than a thousand years of historical proof to uh, consider in this way. But in spite of all of this, in spite of our recognition that um, we're prone to idolatry and that this is very bad, I don't know about you, but given the seriousness of the matter, I can speak for myself, I give comparatively little attention to the discovery of my own idols. I'm not watchful the way uh, that I should be. What are the creatures that are stealing away my affection and my faith? I know that I create idols all of the time, and yet I'm a little watchful against the creation of them. And then finally, even when they're discovered from time to time, I neglect to pull them down. I leave them uh, enthroned. I hope that as we consider this uh, prophecy and the bitterness that is involved in um, the failure of these idols, that we will be motivated to be watchful in this regard, watchful to identify the idols that yet remain in our hearts and that will be filled, filled with some zeal to bring them down, because there's much at stake. Look with me again at your text, and remember where we are. The Lord has a controversy with his people, with the visible church. Uh, this controversy, as we mentioned historically, begins in the early part of the 4th century. You have the Constantinian Revolution and Settlement, up to that point, the church was kept relatively pure by its persecutions. Uh, if you weren't truly converted, you probably wouldn't want to be a member of the church because it was very, very dangerous. But after the Constantinian Revolution and Settlement, there were lots of worldly reasons to become church members. Um, it was socially acceptable. There's status that's involved in it. You can make a good living in the church doing uh, uh, various things. There's lots of wealth gathering around the church and so on. And so now the church is suddenly glutted with tares. Worldly-minded men that are concerned about worldly things. This is the beginning of idolatry in the worship sense. Still the worship of the true God, but... Um, at least in name, but, but men are dissatisfied with the pure and simple ordinances of the New Testament. How boring to listen to preaching and pray. Uh, we want swinging incense and candlesticks and choirs and all of these sorts of things that attract worldly-minded men. As I mentioned to you before, worldly-minded men cannot see a spiritual Christ and spiritual ordinances. They simply find it boring. When they came into the majority in the church, they changed it. And they fashioned a church and ordinances after their own inventing. Not too long after that, you have the rise of what we have called all along 
anti-Christianism in its primary Greek sense, which is not against Christ, although it is, but that's not its first and primary intention. Its first primary intention is in the place of. Anti-Christianism is uh, any sort of endeavor to put something in Christ's proper place. And that begins first with the sacrament of baptism and the ex opera operato doctrine, the idea that uh, grace is actually being conferred by the sacrament itself. We don't go to Christ's hand, we go to the water. Or perhaps to the priest's hand, or perhaps to the church that authorizes him. But if you understand my meaning, Christ is beginning to recede into the background. By the end of the 4th century, you have the rise of the martyr cult. And now you've got mediators. The scriptures say that there is one only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But now um, those heroes of the faith, the martyrs that had given their lives during the uh, Roman persecution are being deified. And they are being viewed as the principal benefactors of Christians. And so Christians begin to go to them with their prayers worship and adore them. So anti-Christianism in a very gross and direct way. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, these were the new objects of affection and trust. Everyone had their favorite saint. They trusted in these saints for benefits. And Christ recedes further and further into the background. If you remember the beginning of chapter 8, the great high priest the only mediator is sore provoked by all of this. And he begins to judge. The trumpets, the war trumpets of the Lord begin to sound with the first four. Uh, the west falls to the barbarian invasions. With the next two, the east falls to uh, the Islamic invasion. But Christendom's response to all of this is no Repentance. Look with me again at verse 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood. So remember that this, this happens at the end of um, the prophecy concerning the Turks the Islamic destruction of the Eastern Empire in Constantinople. Here we have the situation of the rest of the men that were not killed. That shifts the scene back westward. Their hardness uh, in this situation, their impenitence is all the more remarkable inasmuch as the Turks were a lively threat to them. The Western Empire in the, in the 15th century and they had just viewed the judgments of the East for their uh, idolatries and for their anti-Christianism. And yet they learned nothing. The first sin that's indicated uh, uh, beyond their impenitence itself is their worship of daimonia in the Greek, where we get the word demons. But if you remember our, uh, our exegesis, the primary meaning of this at the time was not uh, demonic spirits, fallen angels, devils. The primary meaning at the time was the vain false deities of the heathen, 
And this is exactly what was going on in the West. Um, You would have known this very well if you were a Greek or a Roman. An emperor or some other great hero dies, and then a cult is erected around him. It's thought to be uh, too much to approach the high gods directly, so you approach these deified mortals. You make them the objects of your petitions and your veneration, and they may or may not intercede for you, but they were the principal beneficiaries. This is the same thing that the uh, visible church was doing with her departed saints, these departed heroes. They were worshiping, in the language of the New Testament, demons, the vain, imaginary gods of the heathen. And interestingly enough, uh, they were doing it in the West in just this way. Idols of gold, silver, brass, and stone, and of wood. This, this does set a distinction from the East. If you know anything about the history of Christianity and its worship, you know that the Eastern Christians preferred to venerate their martyrs through icons, pictures, two-dimensional pictures. As a matter of fact, they did not like statues at all. These idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood were peculiar to the West. So the Romanists would worship with pictures, but they also very much like statues. And from that day to the present day, it's not changed. You can go to most any Roman church and uh, see these things displayed uh, all around you. Now we come to the fulfillment of these things. And I'm going to try to cover a thousand years here in about 10 minutes but it's enough. I, I think in some ways uh, these things are right on the, on the face of it. But remember, this sad history really began at the end of the 4th century. You had the rise of formal uh, demon worship in the Christian church in the martyr cult. Deified heroes and the worship of them. This is formal anti-Christianism in that now the uh, Roman church is multiplying on almost a daily basis mediators. So if you have, uh, if you're getting ready to take a journey and you want safety, you've got a saint for that. And if you are suffering from a bunion, you have a saint for that and so on. For every aspect, they're just multiplying mediators. And you wonder before the end of it, where has Christ gone? He's receded into the background altogether. And interestingly enough, as um, the martyr cult rises, what we would call gross idolatry um, uh, comes right upon its heels. The icons and the statues, icons in the east, icons and statues uh, in the west. But remember our, our, our point. Part of what I wanted to demonstrate here is the failure of the idols to help their worshipers. And remember the long, sad history of the first four trumpets. Were these idols able to save their worshipers? And the answer is no. From the time that they adopted these uh, um, uh, false gods to the time of the fall of the Western Empire less than a century, It is a a history of ruin and misery. The gods in which they had trusted 
could not save. And while all that was going on, the Eastern Roman Empire looked on. The Eastern Roman Empire would not fall until 1453. And everybody should know that date. That's the fall of Constantinople. It's one of those dates everybody should know because the world changed. Uh, By that time, after um, seven or eight hundred years of trying, finally the Muslims took Constantinople. Finally they took uh, the Eastern Roman Empire. But I want to take you a bit back into the history of the East, some history that we've done before, and then we need to bring it to a completion. You remember that in the year 711, Leo the Asarian came to the throne in Constantinople. Leo was a bit different than his predecessors in that he was what came to be known as an iconoclast. This is in contradistinction to an iconophile, an icon lover, or an iconodule, an icon worshiper. He was an iconoclast. He was an icon destroyer. And he was king the progenitor of a dynasty of iconoclasts that lasted some 60 years. During that time, uh, this limited reformation was stimulated by uh, the Saracen problem itself, because the Muslims will tolerate no idols, constantly complaining about the idolatries of the Christians. This did make at least some Christians ashamed and uh, move them to re-examine this issue. There were Reformation-minded groups, such as the Polycians, that um, uh, were encouraging the empire to reform and to move away from this uh, idolatry. There was the obvious prohibition of the scriptures. One wonders how anyone would get around the second commandment, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, thou shalt not bow down to them nor serve them. Even the bowing down is uh, prohibited, and yet it was being done uh, throughout the Eastern Roman Empire. But in spite of these Reformation efforts, still the kings were opposed by most of the Eastern Empire, most of the people. (coughs) The title Iconoclast was a reproach initially. And the Roman popes always supported the veneration of the martyrs through images. (coughs) So um, these kings, these reforming kings, were definitely swimming upstream. It seemed as if uh, they were going to be gaining some permanent ground. In 754, uh, another Constantine came to the throne, a, a successor of Leo, he convened what he thought to be the seventh ecumenical council. That means the seventh general council. And they condemned image worship. And if you'll remember, uh, this iconoclasm was attended by the Lord's blessing. I, I don't know if you can remember all the way back to that sermon where we considered these things. But even this measure of reformation was enough that the Lord in his providence pushed the Saracens back for a time. And they grew quiet. But this wasn't to last. In 781, Empress Irene came to the throne after the death of her husband. She convened another ecumenical council. It is now forever remembered as the seventh ecumenical council, the second council of Nicaea. 
the year was 787. And for our purposes tonight, this is very, very important. You see in this, uh, the very strict and literal fulfillment of the prophecy that's in front of us. The first thing that this council did was uh, revoke and condemn uh, Constantine's council just a handful of years later, well, about a generation earlier. So they they uh, condemned that, and they condemned the iconoclasts. They adopted the veneration of images, but interestingly enough, they did it in the very language of our text, which makes these issues about as plain as the noonday sun. I, I included the Greek of uh, a section of Revelation 9.20, says, so that they should not worship. And the Greek there is proskunesosi. Proskunesosi. That's the language of worship that's used there. And then, not properly devils, but demons. The imaginary gods of the heathen. Interestingly enough, at the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the council wanted to make, and remember, it was a, it was a Greek-speaking council, there were some Latin speakers there, but this is a council that was conducted in Greek. And the council made a distinction between two types of worship. One kind of worship, they said, was, a, you know, a kind of veneration that was appropriate for any sort of venerable being. They called this form of worship proskunesis, the very word that's in our text. But then they said there's a form of worship that is only due to God, and they called this latreia. Some of you might have heard that word. And then when they defended the image worship, it's interesting that they used they used all of the same uh, arguments that were used by pagans from antiquity past. You, sh you should understand that the pagans, for the most part... And by that I mean by an overwhelming majority. They they never believed that the statue was God. We have to be clear about that. They believed that the statue was a way to focus upon the God. You might call it a contact point or a communion point. But when they would fall down in front of their statues, it wasn't because they believed the statue to be the God but rather this is the contact point with the God. We are worshiping the God through the statue. And interestingly enough, these are the same arguments that are used at the Second Council of Nicaea, that uh, we're, not, we're not worshiping the icons or the martyrs, but rather we are venerating the martyrs through the icons, they become a focal point for our faith, for our meditation, and so on. They're, they're aids to us in our devotion. But this is the really interesting thing. The council expressly approved the worship of demons, and they used this very word, proskunesis, the very thing that's forbidden and abominated in this text, was approved of by them there. Uh, it's very interesting that it, this is the language that is used. And uh, all the same Greek words are involved in the language of the uh, council. 
So if you if you understand what was happening here, they they took a thoroughly pagan view of these things. They said we are venerating, worshiping proskunesis, the uh, departed martyrs, through the icons. Paganism uh, in the church, and uh, here. You have the specifically Western manifestation of it, as I mentioned earlier, and that it was only in the West that the statues were approved of. The, the East always disapproved of statues. Also interesting to note that, uh, and look at the inability of the idols to help or save. As soon as they made this decision, the Saracen power revived and continued to vex uh, the Greek Empire pretty much until the, till the rise of the Turks. This is a watershed uh, in the history of uh, Christianity and its worship because now um, the worship of the martyrs through images has been approved by an ecumenical ecclesiastical council. That basically means that all of the Christian world uh, approves of it and the decision of the Seventh Ecumenical Council is considered to be in force throughout the Middle Ages and for, for both the Greek and Roman communes to the present day. They still consider these things to be in force. They have never repented of this gross idolatry. And this lack of repentance, consider, consider the wide variety of witnesses against this sin. Julian the, the Apostate. 4th century emperor, apostate from Christianity, he complained that the rising martyr cults were just gross pagan idolatry. Faustus the Manichaean, some of you will know something about the Manichaean sect. Later, the Muslims, the reforming groups like the Polycians and the Waldensians, coming up into more modern times, the Protestants, the Jews have been complaining about the gross idolatry of Christians all along the way. Uh, the church has been heedless to the word of God that expressly and in no uncertain terms forbids this sort of thing. The church has been hard to God's judgment and punishment through the Muslims who will tolerate no such thing. And the constant calls to repentance uh, from those that know better. And so we ask the question again, can these idols save their worshipers? The West fell in the 5th century. Constantinople fell in the 15th century, vexed, sore vexed by the Muslims all along the way until ultimately the empire crumbled. When the text says that they would not repent, it actually re implies something about two time frames. It tells you what they were doing before. In other words, they were engaged in these idolatries and we see that these idolatries are old and it tells us what they continue to do afterwards. And in some ways, uh, I don't really need to demonstrate this, now do I? That the, uh, neither the Greek church nor the Roman church have ever repented uh, of this terrible sin. But let me give you some, some illustrations, especially right upon the heels of the state. Some of these things are very interesting. I think probably most of you are familiar with the Roman Catholic Rosary. It was uh, uh, revived in its usage in 1460. 
its its true origin is a bit misty. So, some uh, attribute it to the early 13th century. There was a legend that St. Dominic had a, a vision of the Virgin Mary, and the Virgin Mary gave him the idea for the rosary. That might very well have been its origin, but it was not yet something of a common practice. So just a few years after the fall of Constantinople, Alain de la Roche revived its usage, and about a century later it received uh, a papal sanction. And now consider how this idolatry um, has overspread the Roman Catholic world and how common those rosary beads are in the devotions of everyone, from, uh, from popes all the way down to the laics, all uh, making use of this. Um, it has been a great bulwark in the cult of Mary, so it is part of this um, uh, worship of demons. And if I might say so, they have taken the violation of the Lord's prohibition against vain repetition in prayer and made it an art form by the rosary. As people race through and they say their ten Hail Marys to their one I, Our Father and work their way through um, the beads. So this is a great idolatry to the present day. It has been enduring and it is very widespread. All classes, all categories of people in the Roman Church. In 1746, the Mary cult ascended yet further. Um, Pope Sixtus IV sanctioned um, her immaculate conception. So, the, um, of course, we, we had believed, the church had always believed, that the Lord Jesus was conceived without sin by a special miracle. The Holy Ghost visiting the Virgin Mary. A similar uh, miracle was attributed to Mary, that Mary was immaculately uh, conceived. This was, became official Roman doctrine in 1476, although its roots go all the way back to the 12th century, and there had been unsanctioned festivals and celebrations of her immaculate conception since, since that time. One other illustration. All this while, the pantheon of approved canonized saints and martyrs has been growing. In 1482, uh, will some of you know the name of Bonaventure? He was the great Franciscan theologian, and he was canonized at that time. He turned the prayers of the Psalter addressed to the Most High God he reworked them and reworded them so that they would address the Virgin Mary. Uh, a high blasphemy, if there ever was one, but he was canonized. And uh, it was interesting, there was a debate. So the the blasphemy, treating, uh, you know, the words that were directed to God in this altar, uh, attributing those and uh, directing those towards Mary, the blasphemy was obvious, all of this uh, became something of a controversy after his canonization in the 15th century. At first, the papists protested and said, He's, he didn't really write it. It's a, it's a spurious work. Somebody's attributed to him. And then it was discovered and demonstrated beyond any sort of reasonable doubt that he did write it. But they didn't withdraw the canonization. And why should they? 
because he was just doing what they were doing and more of it. This uh, worship of um, demons. So consider all of these things and the failure of these idols to be able to help or save their worshipers. Fall of the West to the barbarians, the fall of the East to the Islamic invasion. In Revelation, it's been the outpouring of these trumpets. There's still no repentance. The seventh trumpet is going to sound and there's going to be a pouring out of seven vials or bowls of ongoing judgment. And the ultimate end of this we have not yet seen historically, but it is revealed for us in Revelation, the catastrophic overthrow of this entire ungodly anti-Christian system. And it's, it's portrayed in some of the most frightful terms that you can imagine in Revelation chapters 18 and 19. If you wanted to take the time to look through those and read those and consider Have these idols been able to help in any way? Have they been able to uh, save? Next week, Lord willing, we'll try to make some progress into these other besetting sins of um, the medieval Roman church. And you might say murders and uh, sorceries. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But in the meantime, let us just take away a, a use Let us bring down our idols and trust in God alone. I hope today we've had a very full demonstration that idols ultimately disappoint. And it really doesn't matter their kind, their shape, their variety, whether it's a military power or whether it's these um, imaginary deities that are being worshipped through uh, pictures and blocks of wood and so on. These idols always disappoint their worshipers, but God never disappoints. And there's not a single thing that he's promised that will uh, fall to the ground. And to this end, just um, three brief exhortations um, only be worthwhile if you actually do them, but uh, do these things. The easiest way to bring down your idols is to be watchful against their creation in the first place, which means keeping our eyes focused upon God and a constant monitoring of the heart to make sure that the heart is not being drawn away from God uh, to other things. Uh, I think we have a peculiar temptation to create idols during times of insecurity when we're fearful about uh, things, but uh, we can really create them at any time. Second, we need to be examining ourselves as, as part of ongoing daily living, and we need to constantly be asking the question, who or what am I loving? Who or what am I trusting? And we need to keep asking ourselves, whenever we find evidence that our affection is set too much upon a creature, or that we're trusting in the creature rather than in God, uh, we know that we have a problem. And remember some of the indications we've given of this. If you are willing to sin in order to have a creature, it's become an idol in your life. If you're willing to sin to get it, uh, offend the Most High God and hold him at arm's length so that you can have that creature, yeah, you've got you've got an idol of the heart uh, 
on your hands. Uh, finding the idols of trust is usually uh, you, you can find in uh, similar sorts of ways. Um, do you become insecure when certain creatures are taken away from you or diminished? This is a sign that we're trusting in them rather than God. I talked about the bank account this morning. It's one of the easiest illustrations for people to understand. If we look at, if we look to God as our provider and we trust him for these things, and he's always the same, whether the bank account is fat or thin, we rest content, right? But if we find that our security, our sense of security rises and falls with the bank account, we have an idol on our hands. And then finally, when you discover an idol, you need to do two things by way of meditation. First of all, every creature compared to the Most High God is ugly. You want to take your heart off of it? Uh, think about it in its comparison with the Creator and the Most High God. And it will seem anything from a very, very insignificant thing, and you'll wonder why you ever cared about it in the first place, to an ugly and deformed thing. But to uh, draw them in, into comparison one with another is one of the easiest ways uh, to, cure, to cure those problems of uh, affection. So you might uh, uh, just... To, Real life example, it's not an unusual thing for uh, for a person to make an idol out of a beloved spouse or child. But that beloved spouse or child, in spite of uh, all sorts of virtues and everything else, is a sinner. And compared um, to the Most High God, an ugly and deformed thing. Why would you love such a thing? Uh, more than uh, the Holy One of Israel, who is altogether beautiful and His holiness. And then uh, when you're tempted to trust upon a creature, just consider how uncertain a thing every creature is. Uh, and then think about the Most High God, His faithfulness to all of His promises, His faithfulness down through the ages, and you'll see that there's no comparison these meditations are one of the best tools to bring down uh, the idols in the heart. So you might think in terms of uh, well, uh, so I'm trusted in my, ba my bank account, but both the scriptures and the history of the world, and even my own experience, will tell you here today, gone tomorrow. You trust something that Paul describes as uncertain riches. They're here, and they're gone. Uh, and in our day and age, just a sober evaluation of American economy, you could wake up to tomorrow and every dollar in your pocket not be worth five cents. And you will instantly discover that if you have trusted in your dollars, you have been a fool. They, uh, they can't save. They can't help. They're pitiful things. But then you consider the Most High God. Throughout Haggai, he's declared himself to be Jehovah of hosts or of armies. He is able to marshal every created thing to take care of his people, even through the very most unexpected avenues. And he has never disappointed his people in, in all of these ages. And so set them in the comparison. And Jehovah 
will always come out shining like the sun in the comparison. And the idols will always seem mean, weak, ugly, despicable. Suffering in the comparison. So let us bring down our idols so that Jehovah and Jehovah alone might be enthroned in our hearts to his glory. Let us pray together.